Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. With this particular species, you know, having already been on the East Coast for over 200 years, there's probably very little we could ever do to try to eradicate them. There are, you know, targeted places that have tried sort of local trapping and removal. Um, there's very, and that was sort of like, you know, like bounty programs established, right? So paying fishers, you know, 40 cents a pound or something like that for all the, the crabs landed. Um, there's very little evidence that that works and has a real impact. Welcome back everyone to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 116, No One Wants These Crabs. Now first, before I get into what this episode is about, I just want to clear the air a little bit about last week's episode, which was supposed to be this episode, and due to a technical glitch, uh, the unfinished version of the episode went out. So this is the official, edited, ready-to-go version of episode number 116, not what some of you got as a sneak preview last week. Now, in this week's episode, I'm going to be talking with Marissa... McMahon and Megan Harvey of the Intertidal Crab Citizen Science Project. Marissa is the director of fisheries in Manomet. It's a Massachusetts-based nonprofit. And the fisheries focus uh, their work on strengthening and diversifying fishery resources, habitat restoration, and ecological monitoring. Maggie is a science curriculum specialist for the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. Uh, these two have basically paired up to run the Intertidal Crab Citizen Science Project, and it's providing members in the community, so think teachers, students, volunteers, it provides them the ability to work with scientists to monitor invasive crab species. So they're going to fill us in on why the, what kind of species these crabs are and why they're invasive, how they got there, why they're causing such an issue, and how this project benefits students, teachers, community, even commercial fishermen as well. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor. On the line today, 
I have two, what I know is going to be very awesome guests talking about a topic that is close to my heart in two different areas. One as a conservationist outdoorsman, and then also on the educational side as well, seeing that, that you know, my day job is currently still a teacher. So I want to welcome Maggie and Marissa. Maggie, how are you doing today? Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Marissa, we having a good day today? Yeah, having a great day. Glad to be oh. here. Yeah, uh, this is a great day for me. Anytime I get to record these conversations, it's great for me because I love talking about conservation and how I love talking to people who get involved. Uh, and what we're going to be talking about today is the Intertidal Crab Citizen Science Project. So let's just start with what is the Intertidal Crab Citizen Science Project? I can start there. So this project is, it's a collaboration um, with Marissa um, Elizabeth Stevenson at New England Aquarium and with students and teachers and community members across uh, the Gulf of Maine from New Hampshire and, and Maine. Um, and it's a, a large group working together to understand changes uh, in intertidal crab populations. Um, and so what that means uh, on the ground is that it's people who are going out to uh, collect data on uh, European green crabs and Asian shore crabs and uh, native Jonah and rock crabs, um, and then uh, submit and compile that data to try and, and get a sense of uh, what we are seeing in these populations. Um, so that's... So when you say people going out and gathering this information, um, who are these people? So for the most part, uh, these are students and teachers uh, participating in this project. So a lot of middle school, uh, high school, even elementary school teachers uh, across the state of Maine and in New Hampshire as well. Uh, so in the classroom, they will um, learn about intertidal populations, communities. Uh, they'll learn about um, climate change and how climate change is potentially impacting uh, local coastlines. Um, they'll learn how to identify crabs, measure them, determine the sex, uh, collect all kinds of different data, and then they go out into the field and, and collect that data and contribute it to the project. But I remember as a kid having field trips where we would go to, you know, the, the we have the Carnegie Science Museum or the Museum of Natural History. And basically you're just, for the most part, walking around looking at cool things and learning about it, but you're just walking around. I can't, uh, and even as a teacher now, um, there, there's not a whole lot of like immersive, like I'll take my culinary students to a restaurant and they'll see how things are prepared and how things work behind the scenes and maybe get to eat a little bit of that food. But I can't imagine like that would be awesome, an awesome opportunity for these students to actually like put on those like muck boots and, and put on the crabbing gear and actually like trap these, these crabs and get to have hands on. I, I, I'm thinking of that as like a tremendous learning opportunity for these students. Yeah, and it's not just hands-on and immersive, it's that the students are contributing to active research, right? It's really important. We have major questions about what invasive crabs are doing to intertidal populations. And a lot of these students um, come from coastal communities that are being affected by um, 
the soft shell clam industry being affected by, by these invasive crabs and, and mussels as well. And, and so what they're doing is they are contributing to research that is helping us understand this problem. Um, and then they even have the opportunity back in the classroom to analyze the data that they have collected and you know, uh, participate in the process of, of figuring out what is happening and finding solutions. That's awesome. So Marissa, you're the professional, right? So, I mean, how does this project, obviously the kids being involved is going to help them with learning and, and feel like they're being a part of the project. How does this help professionals, right? Don't we typically associate research like this to like professional researchers going out and gathering the data? These are kids. So how does that help you? Yeah. I mean, I would start by saying that with this particular invasive species, there's just a lot that we don't know. And there hasn't really been a lot of effort for sort of like long-term monitoring. And so there's just these huge gaps in what we know about this species and what it's doing to our ecosystem. And so, you know, we've really focused in, in just recent years on really ramping up our efforts for monitoring. And so what's great about in this intertidal monitoring and this protocol is that it's so accessible. It's not, it's not, you don't need very specialized equipment. It's very straightforward. Anyone can do it. I mean, I've done it with third graders. I've done it with college students, right? Like there's just a why anyone can really access this, this type of science and do it and collect data that's really useful. And so this data is contributing to our overall understanding of these populations. And so with all of these different students and teachers, you know, participating and contributing, it's just really expanding the scope of what we know and, and understanding, you know, overall sort of the population dynamics of this species, which is hugely important for trying to figure out ways to sort of manage and mitigate the, the harmful impacts. So before we started recording, you know, as I was thinking about like, oh, what do we want to talk about? Um, how do I want to go about this? The thing that kept popping in my head was it's Maine. Maine is known for lobsters, right? Like every time you hear something about Maine, it's all about lobsters. Um, but we're talking about crabs. I mean, what is it about these crabs that makes them invasive and makes us have to monitor them and, and be concerned about their overall population? So this particular species is called the European green crab because it's native to Europe and it actually traveled to the east coast of the United States in ship ballast water back in 1817. So it has been here for a long time. Um, it made it, 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 we, you know, as far as, as, as understanding goes, it was likely somewhere in sort of the Chesapeake Bay or perhaps, you know, Long Island area that the invasion first occurred. It made it north into the Gulf of Maine and to the coast of Maine in the early 1900s. So it has been here for a very long time, right? So some people might even argue that it's now become a naturalized species because it's been here for so long. The issue right now that is getting everyone sort of, you know, thinking about this species and trying to um, come up with solutions is that it's really responding quite well to warming waters. So right now the Gulf of Maine is warming faster than 99% of the rest of the world's oceans. And that's actually really favorable for this species. They really like that. So they are actually increasing in abundance. They're sort of more abundant than we've really ever known them to be, which means that those negative impacts they have are just exacerbated. 
And so that's why just in the past decade, so much attention has been turned to trying to figure out, you know, first and foremost, where are they occurring? How abundant are they? Just the very basics of a species population. And then, you know, try to understand from there sort of the strategies that we could use to try to combat them. So one of, typically when we think about an invasive species, we think of it as being invasive because it eats all the food that the native species would otherwise consume. Um, I'm assuming that's one of the impacts it has, but I mean, what are some of those impacts, negative impacts that it's having in the Gulf of Maine? Yeah, well, competition absolutely for food and shelter and other resources with our native species is one of the things that we've uh, you know been able to, to document. Um, certainly with our native crab species, with lobsters, which is a very important industry. Um, and so, you know, that certainly is one of the negative impacts. I would say probably not the most um, sort of prominent. Um, one of the things that this particular species is really good at is eating shellfish. And so they're very voracious predators of things like soft shell clams and mussels. And they've actually had a you know, hugely detrimental impact on those populations. We've seen a major decline in the soft shell clam industry in particular in the Gulf of Maine in the past uh, decade or so due to green crab predation. They also um, are responsible for a lot of habitat destruction. So really important habitat like eelgrass and salt marsh, all very important coastal habitats. Green crabs sort of burrow into those areas and cause a lot of erosion. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a wide range of things that that they're impacting. Okay, so Maggie, let's. Uh, I want to go back to you because I'm thinking about like I'm a teacher. Let's sort of think about. Uh, let's go step by step. I'm a teacher that's interested in in getting, you know, one of my classes or a couple of my classes involved in the project. You know, what's the step by step to to get my kids to? an area to do this? And then what are those kids actually doing to get, gather all that data for the project? So um, the easiest way to, to get involved is we do workshops with teachers up and down the coast uh, throughout the year where uh, we bring teachers together and we uh, go out uh, into the field and we collect data together. We talk about that data, we talk about European green crabs together. You know, we we um, have a full sort of learning experience around uh, participating in this project, so that then teachers can go back and then um, apply that work and you know with their with their students in their their own classrooms. Um, the other thing that we do is we develop all kinds of curriculum resources, right? So all kinds of things that teachers can can do with students, uh, develop with students. We develop. Um, all kinds of games, you know, that that a model what is happening with with crabs in the inner title to build some of that background knowledge, um, and then also um, just supports to help with with thinking about um, what this data might mean and how it's contributing to our overall understanding, um, and lots of resources to help kids with identifying crabs and, and measuring them. So first steps for a teacher uh, would be come to a workshop, though it's it's not required in a lot of our, our teachers sort of go off and, and do it on their own. Um, 
use some of the curriculum resources that we that we give to teachers to um, help their students, you know, build some knowledge and context around this problem. Um, and then uh, a lot of schools are close enough where they can just walk right out to a place where they can collect data. Um, others plan one big field trip a year um, and get on a bus and, and go to a place where they can collect some data. Um, some classes go out uh, once a month throughout the entire year so that they get this really um, big data set and they can really monitor closely, you know, their, their one area and how it's changing over time. But uh, go out to uh, a, a rocky intertidal area. Um, and then the class actually works together as an entire group um, to, to collect a sample of their intertidal area. Um, so they, uh, they choose a, a random spot along um, the, the lower part of the intertidal zone. And this is where they have the greatest chance of, um, of finding native and also our invasive crabs. Um, and they're all sampling in this lower intertidal zone because we know that the, the different parts of the coast are, um, are a little different in the crab populations. So we wanna make sure that we're getting this consistent data set. And they, um, lay out a one meter squared quadrat or a one meter squared area, either with rope or with a little PVC pipe. And they immediately go and, and they collect all of the crabs that they can find in this area in a bucket. Um, and once they have that information, they collect information as well on um, you know, what, what that area is like. Is it, is it rocky or seaweedy, right? What's the crab habitat there? Cause that might influence the data that they've collected. Um, and then they go through each crab that they that they get and they um, identify it as either our European green crab um, in areas of southern Maine students are also finding uh, an invasive Asian shore crab or whether it's one of our native species either Jonah or rock crab. Um, and then from there they, they measure the crab they. Um, uh, determine the sex, whether it has eggs. They also count the number of claws as a way of um, looking for any type of uh, competition, right, um, among, among crabs. Um, and then from there, once they're, they're done, um, they go back into the classroom and there's, uh, they submit all of that data online to go into the central database. So do they put the crabs back? or do they get to take those home with them to eat? <laughs> that's a really great question. And that's one of the first questions we get at any of our, any of our workshops. Um, so with native crabs, they absolutely put them back, right? We want those crabs there. Uh, with the invasives, the ideal is that they are not putting them back um, and that they can use these crabs for uh, compost. A lot of them do that or for chicken feed, uh, some classes have actually contacted local restaurants and uh, one class had a, a chef come in and make a, a seafood stock with their green crabs. Um, but it's really, it's really for the class to sort of work together around what's the solution of what to do with these crabs. Um, a single day of sampling is not gonna make a big impact on the population at that place in time. And so uh, some students have a really hard time with uh, removing the crabs. And so uh, that's, that's something for the class to, to work out together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can understand that. I can think off the top of my head, you know, a couple of students I've had in class that would not be okay um, initially with the removal of those crabs. And, and I get that. Um, 
but I guess when you look at it from more of that ecological standpoint, you have to realize that, like one, like you said, it's really not going to make a huge impact to just take a couple off, but individually, we can't look at these crabs individually. We have to look at them as, you know, that more holistic approach, what is best for all of the, especially native crabs in that area. Uh, when we talk about these invasive species that, you know, which we've sort of tried to, I've tried to have an array of them uh, covered here on the podcast. We always talk about mitigation techniques and things that we're doing to try to remove that invasive species off of the landscape, or in this case, you know, the aquatic landscape. Uh, and it's almost, almost always that there's some sort of incentive behind that. So Marissa, what are some of the mitigation strategies we have to try to reduce the amount of invasive crabs? And then are there any incentives to get people out there that try to get more of these out of that aquatic landscape? Yeah, the really the only um, tools that we have in the toolbox are targeted removal for this particular species. Um, and, you know, part of it is that they've been here for so long that they're just very well established. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of, there's different strategies that you could use depending on when the species invaded. So if, you know, it was a relatively new invader, it might actually be viable that we could, you know, try to go out and eradicate them. With this particular species, you know, having already been on the East Coast for over 200 years, there's probably very little we could ever do to try to eradicate them. There are, you know, targeted places that have tried sort of local trapping and removal. Um, there's very, and that was sort of like, you know, like bounty programs established, right? So paying fishers, you know, 40 cents a pound or something like that for all of the, the crabs landed. Um, there's very little evidence that that works and has a real impact. And the problem being, um, it's very difficult to try to do something like that long-term, right? To try to sustain some sort of program like that. So instead what we've in just the past couple of years really tried to turn towards is actually developing fisheries and markets for the species to actually benefit from them in some way. And then also, you know, create that sort of, you know, incentive within the, the development of the fishery and the market because there's demand for the product. Um, and there's been a lot of work done along those lines, um, and there's just really great um, indication that there's a huge amount of market demand and that that is really a potential solution or strategy that we can utilize. Again, not to eradicate the species because it's just likely that there's no amount of pressure that we could put on them that's going to to do that at least any time in the near future, um, but to at least you know exert some sort of pressure and control on the population so that they maybe aren't continuing to just increase in abundance unchecked. Yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, like I said, Maine is known for lobster. I love lobster. Um, anytime that you that I can get my hands on fresh crab, I, I don't live near the coast, so fresh crab is for me is typically if I go on vacation. Um, I mean, are these crabs that that have a culinary aspect to them where like restaurants would want these, these crabs to sell? 
So what we found is that you have to get a little creative because it's a very small bodied crab. So it's not like, you know, your typical crab that you think about in this country, like stone crab or dungeness crab or blue crab or Jonah crab, right? Those are all big enough that you can actually pick the meat out of them and have, you know, the picked crab meat product. Um, with this species, it's so small compared to, to those others that there's really no efficient or effective way to pick the meat out of the body. So there's not a picked meat market, but instead, um, you know, a few years ago, we started to look around for other examples throughout the world um, where, you know, this species or similar species were utilized. We actually came across the centuries old fishery in Venice, Italy that targets a very, very almost identical um, species, the Mediterranean green crab that if you held them side by side, the European and Mediterranean green crab, they're literally identical. Um, and that fishery specifically was targeting soft shell green crabs. And so they had a hugely lucrative market um, for a soft shell green crab product, much like in this country where we have soft shell blue crab. Um, so we've actually worked you know, for a few years now with, with those fishers and trying to adapt those techniques here in New England. Um, and we've been pretty successful. And so that is one viable market, soft shell green crab. Um, lots of other folks are also working on more value added type products. So the University of Maine is working on a couple of different products like a fermented sauce that's sort of like a fish sauce, but using the green crab instead. Um, you know, stocks and broths and things like that um, are very much, you know, uses that I think have, are, seem to be popular. And, you know, it's just sort of a matter of some, uh, you know, business savvy or entrepreneur type spirit to come in and really sort of latch on to that and then take it to the next level. So the the size of these crabs, they just, they can only get so big? Is that sort of the yeah, problem? Yeah, so yeah, about um, 85 millimeters across. So I think that's maybe roughly like five inches um, across um, on the back of the carapace is what we call the back of the crab. Um, so, you know, that's quite a bit smaller than the size of the crabs that you would typically use for a picked meat product. Yeah, if I'm if I'm ordering crabs at a restaurant uh, and they came out that size, I would probably be pretty disappointed. <laughs> just, as you said, based on what we're used to in this country, just having these very large crabs. Uh, so you mentioned we mentioned earlier that um, the water temperature is rising in the main Gulf faster than virtually everywhere else in the world. Why? Why? Why is that happening? And um, is there anything we can do to try to reverse that or, or slow it down at least? So the main reason why that's happening is due to ocean currents and sort of a disruption in ocean currents. Um, so we have a very cold water current that comes down from the Arctic called the Labrador Current, and that sort of empties into the Gulf of Maine, bringing very cold, cold Arctic water down into the Gulf of Maine. And that current, what we've seen is that sort of as ice is melting and more and more fresh water is entering into the, the oceans, that that current is being disrupted. So it's causing less and less of that really cold water to, to come down and reach the Gulf of Maine. At the same time, you know, the, the Gulf Stream, which is bringing warm water up from the tropics, is sort of inching its way further and further north each year. So we have sort of this 
combination of less cold water, more warm water from these currents. And that's sort of the perfect storm of warming. Um, with, with these currents, I mean, this is sort of, um, a, you know, a multi-decade kind of process where, you know, it would be next to impossible to, to sort of stop or slow that process from happening in the near future. Um, but, you know, it ultimately all really hinges on sort of our, our energy use and, and sort of carbon footprint and, and trying to, you know, lower those impacts um, on a global scale. So it's not as easy as just taking, you know, a couple buckets of ice up, up into the Arctic, dumping it out no. and, and helping out. Um, <laughs> if only it was, if only it was that simple. Um, exactly. <laughs> so, oh man, uh, the more I talked to, you know, I just a couple of weeks ago had um, someone on talking about green energy and its viability. And um, the more that, that I talked to, conservation organizations, the more I talk to researchers and people that work with environments, um, the more disheartened I get over where we currently are. Um, and I feel like the pace in which we're trying to adapt. Um, and I just, uh, hopefully, hopefully we can get more and more people through projects like this um, to understand the complexities and um, how much effort it's going to take to um, mitigate the climate change that, that we're seeing. And, and hopefully we can be a little more expeditious and um, innovative here in the near future to help us out long-term. Um, all right, let's, I, I wanna end with you, Maggie. I, I wanna know, you know, this is a citizen science project that students and, and people in Maine are taking part of. If anyone's listening and they're like, this is cool. This, this is a really cool idea. I would love to help out. I would love to be a citizen scientist, but I live in Pennsylvania or Louisiana or Montana, right? It's not for me to come up and help out. Um, you know, I mean, I, I might be able to convince my wife to swing that trip to Maine and do a vacation and do a, a quick help once, but um, it's not going to be a sustained effort. So if I want to try to help out with citizen science, um, how, how could the, how could I or the listeners take part in citizen science? Absolutely. Um, citizen science is, is, um, growing really fast around the globe. Um, and it's increasingly being respected as real science, good science, empowering a huge amount of very important research. So I really, really encourage people wherever you are to try and, and find a local project or participate in, in a global one. I know NASA has a number of global projects that you can get involved with. Um, that's their GLOBE pro program. Um, but there, there are so many others, um, including iNaturalist, uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, has um, specific bird projects. I mean, there, there are just, there are dozens and dozens um, of opportunities. You can always reach out to local science uh, research institutions or, you know, just keep, keep an ear out. There's increasingly news stories about local efforts, um, community generated efforts of people trying to understand and approach challenges in their own communities through this collective science effort. Um, so it's, it's a great way to be involved and have an impact, especially in this moment where our ecosystems are changing really rapidly um, in ways that we don't fully understand to, to have 
and impact to be part of that growing understanding and potentially be part of, of solutions of you know, the local challenges of climate change. Yeah, and I would encourage anyone, you know, even if you don't want to take part in an official project, uh, even just something as simple as like what I did this summer, planting a pollinator garden and, um, you know, taking 15 minutes every week to go and sit and stand and, and just watch what was coming into the garden, uh, both from birds and different insects um, like bees and, and butterflies, uh, and then just recording that. I mean, that itself is citizen science and just understanding what's going on in your own backyard and all the different species that you can see that it's, it's very fulfilling. It's something that I did as a little side project. And then, you know, now that it's winter time and the pollinator garden is, is flat. Um, it, it's something that I sort of miss having that little bit of time, even just in my own backyard. Um, Maggie, Marissa, thank you for joining me. This was, this was awesome to hear about and uh, inspiring to myself as both an outdoorsman, conservationist, and then also as a teacher as well. I love the fact that not only is this research being done to try to help the uh, ecological status of the, the Gulf of Maine, but also inspiring you know, our youth to at least have an understanding, a little bit more of an understanding of the outdoors around them. So thank you both for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Once again, that's going to do it for another episode. Thank you for bearing with me with these some of these technical issues. Been trying to figure some of these things out as they've been uh, popping up, and um, I really appreciate those of you that have stuck around and continue to to listen to to these podcasts. Every time I'm able to get them out, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Uh, for those of you that are listening to the end, uh, I am sort of looking at a ask CTW anything, ask conserve the wild anything segment. So uh, shoot an email over to info at conservewild.org with a question you have about conservation, uh, about conserve the wild, uh, about me, uh, anything that has to do with the outdoors, ask a question. Uh, and what I'm going to do is answer it. And if I don't have the information in my head, I'm going to reach out to some of the experts, uh, some of the scientists, some of the researchers uh, that I have networked with over these past couple years and try to find the answer for you. And when I do, I will read the question and give the answer on air. Uh, and for a thank you for that little extra segment, uh, when that happens, uh, I will reach out to you and send you some free swag uh, for the podcast and for the organization. So if you're interested in some potentially awesome swag, shoot that email over uh, to infoconservewild.org and ask your question and I will find the answer for you. Until next week, as always, get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.